Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. This is going to be maybe the best show of the year because it's the best of the best. It's the best of 2023. So I went back and I found the things that were downloaded the most, the episodes that were downloaded the most, the episodes that were viewed the most throughout 2023. And I wanted to be able to share that with you here and give a little bit of commentary to each one. I'm so thankful to this audience. I can't tell you enough what a blessing it is to be able to offer this podcast, the various things that come from andymillerthe3rd.com to you. Um, it's such a delight to hear from you. Um, sometimes I get, um, often I get letters and people are commenting about ways maybe they're using the course. There's been dozens of churches and small groups that have used my Heaven course or the Jude course contender. So it's really a blessing for us to be able to share with you at this time. So thank you. Thanks for everybody who checks in. And thanks to my sponsors, Bill Roberts, Keith Waters. Um, it means a lot to, to me to have their support. Wesley Biblical Seminary, of course, makes it possible for me to do this in this office. And then there are two other sponsors who are, are anonymous, and they know who they are. And my thanks to them for supporting this work that we've done. And I want to let you know something that's coming out. I have a, a preaching mentoring cohort that's going to be available, not through Wesley Biblical Seminary. It's not academic. There's no academic credit. But I've had a couple of people reach out to me, and they are interested in having like a mentored relationship with me in preaching. And so I was, I was glad to think about that, and I thought the best way I could do that is to put together a cohort of three to five people. So I have two people who are in right now, and I have three other slots available from January through April. And this will be a time where there'll be one-on-one -on -one time, there'll be group time, and then there'll be some um, uh, like pre-recorded content that will be only available for those folks. So if you're interested in becoming a more effective preacher, if you'd like to do that, I encourage you to reach out to me. You can find me at the contact information at andymillerthe3rd.com. And if this is the first time you've checked out this podcast, and if you're not on my email list, I'd love for you to get on. Here's what will happen if you do. I'll send you a free tool called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a 45-minute video teaching, and it has a worksheet that you can use to go deeper in your preaching and teaching preparation. And that's in part what led to this process is some people have used that resource and they're like, I want to go a little further. I want, I want more than just that. So that's what this is. So if you're interested in that, let me know. And then also, as you're hearing this, my two courses that are on my website, Heaven and Other Destinations, A Biblical Journey Beyond This World, talking about the afterlife, five sessions, discussion guides, interactive forums that you can be a part of. And then, of course, about five hours of content with me teaching through the theology of the afterlife. Um, that's going to be available for 50% off through January 2nd. So through January 2nd of 2024, you can get that at half off. And so what you need to do is you need to use the code HALF. HALF. So H-A-L-F. And the same thing is true with my contender course. So as you're getting ready for this kind of 2024 season, maybe you're trying to find up a topic for Bible study. Maybe you're trying to find something to do in your Sunday school class. Let uh, Go out and enter that code. You can find it at andymillerthird.com with either course until January 2nd. It'll be available at half off. And again, the code is half, H-A-L-F. I believe I'm spelling that correctly. And if you do it, and I've, I, I, people have taken me up on this offer, if you end up doing this in a small group or um, a Sunday school class, if I can do it, I would be willing to zoom in with you and like just kind of visit with the class for a little bit. I've done that with people around the country, and it's been a real treat to do that. So you can check all that stuff out at andymillerthe3rd.com. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you the top five podcasts of this year. 
um, the ones that have been viewed or downloaded the most. So now we've crossed 500,000 altogether views or downloads. I, that was something I actually even checked that number. That was four or five months ago. So I probably need to update it. Um, it we've been growing every month. This is a real treat. And I just finally figured I didn't even know what, what monetization was. Um, I didn't know that was even possible. Uh, so we crossed... <laughs> I'm not really a YouTuber in that sense. I don't know much about it. So we have 1,500 people who are following us. So I guess that's a good thing. So go ahead and do it. And uh, we'd love it if you made sure to subscribe, like, whatever it is, share, share on social media. That's a helpful piece. Okay, the number one download this year was one of the podcasts about the Asbury Revival. And it was kind of a poor recording quality. I did it from a hotel room in Orlando, and I brought my brother, Dr. Nathan Miller, and um, the well-known apologist and Old Testament scholar um, from the Charismatic Tradition, Dr. Michael Brown, onto my podcast to talk about the revival. So that was... No, that that was the number one podcast this year. I have one that has become my number one podcast of all time that was added to. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But this, I decided to get a moment that kind of came in the pivot where I had my brother talking about his experience and working with the rival and experiencing it. And then we pivot to Michael Brown. So you hear a little bit of his perspective of leading the revival that happened in Brownsville in the 90s. So I think this is a helpful piece. And obviously, this is a huge story from this last year, but not just a story a work that God is doing that we want to celebrate again and again and ask God to continue to do these types of things in our communities, in our country, in our institutions, but also in our hearts. So I, here's the very first one, the very first highlight from 2023 about the Asbury Revival. So something I think people aren't necessarily aware of because it's kind of been lost in the shuffle of things is, again, um, I think there's a really beautiful thing about how this started. And so on thir- on Wednesday, talking to a lot of folks as we were processing it immediately that day, something that happened on campus the day before, which probably not given as much airtime, it was kind of like it was planned late or didn't get announced on time, was there was this like remembering circle that took place on campus, um, just recalling um, just the, the sins of our past um, and thinking about, right. particularly as it relates to race. And there's a guy in Lexington, Shay Brown, who's done this research, just like pulling up the old records of the slave sales in Lexington and just like remembering oh, wow. this. And so, and I wasn't able to go because when my daughter got home from campus, but a, a, a group gathered in a circle and in just like sort of a holy lament and just like thinking about this sadness and like, like not repenting of personal guilt for it, but repenting of like, and our institution Asbury doesn't have a, just a perfect history with, with racism and race relations. And in that moment, um, a lot of people felt who were there felt like the seed of something was laid in that repentance. And there's something that happened there. And that the next day that by just coincidence that the gospel choir was singing. um, And it just reminded me of like these two truths that we find with, with how we've, how as a church, we've experienced the presence of the Holy spirit is that he is with us when we suffer. He's with us when we lament and like he can hold that and his presence can be there in those moments of real darkness. But he's also with us when we celebrate. And like beyond that, he wants to turn our mourning to dancing. And like he can hold Amen. our darkness and his light can overcome Amen. all of that. And it was just like those that bit, which in the light of all that's come, I think a lot of people who have come onto this thing as it's become like this place of holy pilgrimage, like don't recognize that bit of our community's history and how that was kind of like wrought out in this moment of 
like just like real genuine repentance. Oh, Nate, thanks for sharing that. Anyway, I think that's something people need to know. Um, it would be helpful to know. That's great. Those online can see that we've uh, welcomed in Dr. Michael Brown. And Nate, I'm glad to have you stay along. Hey, I'm also glad to introduce two friends. Dr. Brown, this is uh, my brother, Dr. Nathan Miller, who teaches at Asbury University. Dr. Brown, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad for two, two people I admire to see each other. <laughs> well, great. So, so this is your physical brother and your spiritual brother, yes? Yes. Both, indeed. Yes. yes. Yeah, oh, we yeah, got yeah. him. The, the similarities are undeniable. Uh, sorry for the, the bad lighting here. I'm actually teaching this week in Kona, Hawaii, at the at the YWAM base, the University of the Nations. Just an extraordinary setting and atmosphere, an incredible heart for the Lord and missions. And uh, so it's it's glorious here, but the the lighting where I'm staying is not that perfect. So, so may the light of God's presence overshadow the darkness of the room here. Amen. Well, I'm a similar thing. I'm doing, I'm at a hotel in Florida, in Orlando. My brother's in truly the holy city at this moment. He's in Wilmore, Kentucky. But so it's a rainstorm here right now. So, uh, so Hawaii, well, you, Hawaii, Hawaii sounds nice. You know, just, just to, to say this, as I've been so thrilled with the reports of what God is doing. And I mean, the, the, the hand of God all over it from so many angles it just makes it so undeniable in terms of what god's doing and the fact that there are no well-known names or faces or anything associated with it makes it all the more beautiful but during the brownsville revival i started to write a book on on how to put out the spirit's fire it was basically 30 different things yeah. to say if we do this we'll hinder and stop what god is doing i only read i only wrote part of it during the revival but some years later i had this deep sense you're going to need to finish that book. In other words, you, you'll have the privilege of, of being in another wave of the spirit. And, and then I, I began to sense in recent years that God is going to be moving all over. It won't just be one place, but God's going to be moving in thousands of different places all over America. And, and I, I began to say that and write about it. And then as I've been traveling out, uh, actually it was August of 2021 in prayer, I, I felt the Lord speak to me. There's a book we wrote called the Revival Answer Book that dealt with criticism of revival. Why this? Why does this happen? I went through history and biblical foundations and all of that. And I felt impressed by the spirit. Make sure you have plenty of these on hand. They're going to be needed. So I had this growing sense. Something is near. Something is near. And, and then you know, wrote in November about I see a thousand thousands of holy fires all over America to kind of paint the picture. And the end of January on the radio, I thought, okay, I just have to say it. It is so real and clear to me because as, as I've been traveling, I've just been seeing God moving, not because not I bring it. I mean, I'm going to places and they're marked by prayer and fasting. They're marked by the presence of God. They're marked by young people flocking I, I, everywhere I'm going. And I said, I've got to declare it. So I got on the radio. It was the end of January. I said, the first waves of this great revival movement, the first waves of the sanctuary, revival, they're already here. It has already begun. It has started. And you know, it, it was just so much all over me. And then with all the timing and everything, the collegiate day of prayer, you know, set for February 23rd at Asbury, could God do it again? And, and of all places, you know, one that's just going to get national attention in a way that's so nameless and faceless. I mean, this is God is on the move. And, and not Amen. only, not only are we getting the reports. Of that you're all hearing about the Holy Spirit falling on different campuses. Uh, one of our missionaries in the Philippines, a, a key intercessor in our ministry, 
texted me the other day. He's got two sons at Lee University. And one of them was in a prayer meeting. And they said 12 hours later, they were still praying and worshiping. No music, just going. So we're hearing all those reports. But now I'm getting texts from pastors in different parts of the country about the spirit falling dramatically at their church services this past Sunday. So wow. it, it's, it's God's on the move. Yeah. And, and Amen. It's, just, it's thrilling to see what God is doing. And again, I am rejoicing. Craig Keener is a dear, dear friend. So we've been getting frontline reports from Craig and, and through Andy and folks at the seminary connected to Asbury frontline reports. So we got to seize this moment. And I'm thrilled with Asbury leadership, having the wisdom to just steward and, and, and keep things on the right track. I'm going to have to go in a second. So I'm going to interrupt you before you start talking, Andy. So first okay, of all, I, wanted to, I was going to hand it to you, brother. I just wanted you to know. I knew you were leaving. I was going to hand it to you. Craig Keener's <laughs> son was a student of mine. So Craig Keener is David Keener's dad to me. So just throw yeah, that out. That's... David Keener is a really beautiful musician too. So people should look him up. Um, uh, just to reference some of the things you're saying about what you're seeing with people. I think one of the things that struck me most by the people kind of coming here on, again, what I kind of describe as pilgrimage is just the hunger. Uh, people are so hungry for an experience with the Lord. And like, I think we, like, I believe that we even see in society at large, like society is just hungry for the sorts of experiences that, that the Lord can provide that our society is, has tried to fill and has been left wanting. Um, and, uh, I'm just so grateful for that. And I'm, I'm great. I'll look forward to listening to the rest of this conversation later, but right now I have to go help shepherd people in and through the rain. So really grateful for opportunities to serve and thankful um, for y'all's work. And uh, I'll look forward to listening to the rest of this later, but bless y'all. Thanks. Bless you. Thanks for coming in. It's Dr. Nathan Miller coming to us. He also is the chief banjo player for the revival. If you go back and look at the videos, you'll see him there. Uh, and on top of his other work, Dr. Brown, I'm so interested. Um, like, so you've written this book and, and you've thought about this. You've been through some of these things already. The Asbury's experiencing some of the tensions that come with this. What, how, Help us know, like, as this movement is moving, what 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 do we do? Uh, give advice to some of the leaders who are in these places right now. Yes. So let, let me I'm going to give a few practical things right off the bat. Uh, let me say some broader things first. Uh, I, I am for months now. I have wanted to reach out to a number of leaders that I know, pastors who have been seeing a steady move of God in their churches for some years. So not okay. on the level of everyone flocking from around the country, or, you know, the, doing the pilgrimage kind of thing, but something steady, God moving for years, growing healthy. So I finally put it together. I said, okay, I need to do this to get on the phone with these guys and say, listen, it's really important. We're going to have thousands of places all over America experiencing revival that never have before. And we're going to have to give some kind of mentoring help leaders steward things because it's, wow. it's, it's easier said than done. So this coming week, I'm going to be meeting with these guys and I, I've got a strategy. I believe we can do it largely online with a coalition of leaders to help, to help steward, mentor, give guidance to those that want it. So hopefully we can provide some really practical outlets for this in an ongoing basis, some relational as well. And I, I got that nudge from the Lord, talked to a publisher yesterday, said, hey, I've, I got to finish writing this book and get it out by the fall on, on how to sustain revival or conversely, how to kill a move of God, depending on whether you put, put it negatively or positively. And I had a list of 30 items there. When I, when I wrote my list years ago and started writing the chapters, I then went 
and, and read Finney's message on hindrances to revival, which is right, available right. in full online. And I was struck by how much overlap there was in the list. So in other words, certain principles apply. So folks can read Finney's long sermon on hindrances to revival yes. as part of his lectures of revival of religion. It's freely available online. That's very helpful. But a few things, and it's all easier said than done. You know, it reminds me of a Mike Tyson quote, the boxer Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. <laughs> <laughs> all right. This next uh, highlight from 2023 actually came from the year before. But for whatever reason, this podcast just took off this year and has become my number one podcast. And it's not num- normally the theme that people are looking for or think that would come with my my show. But it is one of my interviews with Dr. David E. Clark when he was talking about his new Moody book. Moody's a publisher, in case you didn't know. It wasn't, it's not a Moody book. Um, but it is, uh, it's called Enough is Enough. And so I just brought in a little bit of this conversation where he talks about what emotional abuse is and kind of the initial response that people should offer. And he's often talking about how people deal with narcissists. And this comes up in this interview. And then I've had him on bef- uh, again. And these podcasts just seem to resonate with people. I'm delighted. I don't think it's a, Mental health is a main thrust of what I do or trying to help people when they're dealing with abuse. But I have a great relationship with Dr. Clark. I appreciate his ministry. I find him hilarious. I enjoy every conversation I have with him. And it seems to be something that God has used to bring people um, from, a, from a place of darkness into light. And every time I have him on, it's got somebody reaches out to me and says how it helped them leave a difficult situation. So that's in part why I share this again. I'm so thankful for Dr. Clark and his ministry, and you can find out more about him. I'll have a link in the show notes. So this is a little clip from my interview with Dr. David E. Clark. Right. That is a particularly heinous example of it, but it's right. And the church, the church even understands that most folks get the physical abuse thing. Well, that's outrageous and you got to leave. And yes, you do. But what they miss is the emotional abuse, which frankly is just as bad, if not more damaging than the physical abuse. Yeah. Because it just rips and tears, it depersonalizes, it strips away a person's identity. It does incredible amounts of damage. So it's kind of maybe, I, I know that you have dozens of examples of this, but help me know of like a few of these examples of, of emotional abuse. Like when does this happen? Here's what it looks like, Andy. This, for example, verbal criticism is a major factor here. Okay. And this is this is criticism across the board, and it's on a regular basis, and it never stops. If it's the husband who's the abuser, which he usually is, he'll criticize the wife's weight. Okay. Uh, he'll criticize the wife in the bedroom. He'll criticize the wife's housekeeping, mothering. If she has a job, anything she does is cut down, never good enough, and it never quite ends. That's how he maintains control over her. And for the abuser, who's also a narcissist, usually he controls everything to them. He wants Mm. you to be one down and he wants you to keep trying to please him. But the game is it's never going to work. And of course, also, there's there's an absolute neglect of her needs. The Bible is clear. The husband is to meet the wife's needs. We see that in Ephesians 5.25. Lover as Christ loved the church. That covers everything. Well, he he could care less. It's all about his needs. Her needs mean nothing. Mm. There'll be this silent treatment, kind of a classic technique of, of the narcissist. Either he, it's always a monologue. He will rant and rave and criticize. And then you, you, you have to agree with him or it'll just get worse. And mm-hmm. if you do disagree, he will shy head these guys shut down for days and weeks and months of just cutting her off. No communication. Yeah. And for a woman, that's just awful. Yeah. 
And these guys can, and of course they, they have no conscience. So they always believe they're right. He has no, he's never felt bad about anything he's done in his life. Wow. Could take the form of course he controls the finances, controls your friends, controls what church you go to, controls uh, yeah, the clothes you wear. Control is always a major factor in abuse. Mm. He will slander you to other people, even to your own children. Most of these guys will over a course of decades turn your own children against you. Wow. Well, mom's a little unstable. Your mom's crazy. Uh, he, he can take an incident where maybe you lost control and melted down, but that's about mom because he wants to win them too. I mean, it's just yeah. insidious. Yeah. There could be an addiction. There usually is. Could be a sex addiction. Could be an alcoholic. Could be a drug addict. So those, these are serious categories. This is mm -hmm. not a guy that struggles with something, has gotten better and is walking with the Lord. Oh no, he's a dirtball. I mean, for lack of a better word. Hey, well, and- I yeah, I appreciate you saying because like that I had you on the podcast last time um, with your book that you self-published called My Spouse Wants Out. And when we had that conversation, the day that I published it, I had a couple of people contact me and say, this is me. Wow. And, and I think what was helpful, and some people won't like this approach. I know you've probably heard this criticism. Like you just said, this is a dirt ball. And you like ask people to kind of get in a realistic place to realize what has happened. I mean, the, the challenge, I mean, this is the challenge is that people are listening to you right now and they heard right in that moment, that's me. Before we go, I may have some other questions I want to ask, but like, before we go on, what, what do you say to those people? If, if they're sensing that they're kind of like feeling, oh, I can't do this. This would be too hard. But I mean, what do you say to somebody who's living with a dirt ball? Well, I say, look, this is a process. You're not, you're not going to get strong enough today to leave him. You're not. This may take weeks, months, even a year or two, but you, we have to start the journey. Because by the time I see them, Andy, and, and you're, you've been a pastor, you know what that's like. They are just so devastated. They can't, they can't even think about leaving. Right, However, right. we serve the God of the universe who has infinite power. He can do anything. And so if that person doesn't know Jesus, I will, I will in, uh, in, introduce them to Jesus. But most of the time they are Christians. And so we start a process. First, we define it very carefully. They want to make sure, well, I need to make sure that what you're saying is true. I say, I walk them through their story. After 35 years, it doesn't take long. All the, I say, look, he's doing this. He's doing that. He, they're just telling their story. But it's like they're talking for somebody else. They, you know, they think it's okay. They're in denial. Wow. So I will say after 45 minutes on the phone with them or in person, you are married to an emotional abuser. You absolutely are. Look at, look at all these and so that the light, and they'll, they'll resist me on that because they're smart enough to know, well, if this is true, then I, I'm going to have to do something about this. Right. It, it's destroying me. It's destroying my children. And I'll even tell them, look, we're going to give this abuser a chance. It's destroying him too. We're going to give right. him a chance to change. Hey, fair. Uh, so it just, I have to break, it takes a couple of sessions to break through the denial barrier. Yeah. I'm like yeah. the hammer. I'm not, I'm not a warm, fuzzy guy. I'm just right <laughs> to the point. I'll say, look, I'm just telling you. You can do what you want. You can choose to stay with that guy until everything's destroyed. God will allow that, but he doesn't want you to do that. Wow. So I got to get him out of the denial boat on the cold, hard reality land mass and realize, okay, here's what I'm dealing with. Wow. Then we got to get him strong enough because many of these ladies, as you know, Andy, have, they grew up in a home where there was an abuser, mom or dad, one wow. parent abusive, one parent passive, they've seen it. And so they're just, this is just the way it is, why they chose this guy in the first place. So they have to get, they have to work through some things to get strong enough to go, you know what? I have a voice. I'm not putting up with this anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I just hope people are listening. Like this might just be the place where people have come to. And I hope that you'll take Dr. Clark's encouragement. And I mean, what's the likelihood? I, mean, I don't know. I'm not trying to look for odds necessarily, but of things being restored. I mean, if, if it's going to be restored, it's going to have to take this tough approach where you acknowledge what it is. Um, but is there any hope of a restoration when abuse has happened? Like no, there's some. Abuse? Yeah. And I never know, you know, what, which abuser is going to change and which one won't. But the fact is, if it's a bona fide abuser, the way I'm describing it, yeah, it's not good. Four to six percent, that's what you're looking at. Yeah. Now, fair so, enough. So how- and, and, and biblically, we give, we give the sinner a chance. Right. The, the Bible is clear. We confront. We, Matthew 18 is very clear in confronting and going. And, and in my case, you're leaving him. When, and I, I tell ladies all the time, I, I told three this last week. Uh, when you, we, you're leaving your abuser, when you leave him, that's when you find out if he loves you, if he loves the Lord, if he loves your kids, or he doesn't. When wow. a man loses his woman, he, the right guy will move heaven and earth to get her back. He'll do whatever wow. it takes. Walk wow. with the Lord, get his narcissism fixed, and there are programs for him. But if it's the wrong guy, he never will. That'll be your confirmation. Interesting. Wow. It, this narcissism, and you've brought it up several times, and this is when somebody is just focused, their whole life is on them, everything is, is, is like thinking about, they're not asking questions in conversations, they're, they're controlling things to benefit themselves. I mean, when they do this type of thing, do you think it, it, like, it comes because they've gotten something that they want in the past? Is it like it's worked for them? Is that why? I mean, I'm, this is a hard question. It's not answerable, but why are people narcissistic? <laughs> Boy, it is a good question. I think, yeah, most of these narcissists, and I've dealt with them enough, I see them one time and then I refer them to somebody else because I have no patience. I work with the victim. But yeah, they grew up in a home where often there, there was abuse and even they were abused. And so to fight that, to overcome that, it becomes all about me. It's me against the world. So that core of narcissism. The other possibility is, oh, they were on a pedestal from day one. The only boy in the family or the only girl, they were just, they were just, you know, they're loved on and, and it was just overkill, you know, the trophy mentality. And so I, I get everything I want. So they're used to it. And this works well in American society. It absolutely does. Wow. Politically, uh, economically, a career, uh, you know, you, you can really get successful by being a narcissist. We've seen that across the board in politics. Most politicians are, frankly, are narcissists. Probably, yeah. So, yeah, it's developed that way. Now, and our culture is just feeding narcissism. The last 10, 15 years, especially social media, I believe, plays a role in this. Okay. It's all about me, what I'm doing, the trip I'm taking. Look what I'm having for lunch. People take pictures of their food. I, I don't <laughs> care. It's just one of the any Christian folks. Well, you know what? It's all about us. And, of course, Satan yeah. pushes the agenda, too. All right. We're back here. I had my first two highlights from 2023 and i had the revival david e clark and in case you failed to know or i mentioned i failed to mention it i have more of this story mugs look at that and i just have about 20 of them and i would love to share one with you if you are interested you can um in getting a mug for yourself contact me at andymillerthird.com and we'll see about making that happen um a few people have these already so i'm glad glad to share them around all right this third is one of the most humbling moments for me in the sense of I was just totally honored by the fact that N.T. Wright agreed to come on my podcast. Let me tell you a little bit of the backstory there. Um, when I emailed him, I just figured I would get some sort of administrative person. I'd be pushed aside. I get put. I get told no by a lot of people, by the way, to come on the podcast, which is fine. I, I, I'm good at that. I'm good at people telling me no. But I also am 
I think one of my gifts is uh, being like a persistent widow, like being somebody who can keep on asking. And so, but that wasn't the case. Within 20 minutes, N.T. Wright wrote me back this really kind response, and he just said, I'd be honored to come on your podcast. I couldn't believe he, he said that. And then every interaction I had with him over the next couple of weeks as we set up the interview, as I worked with Zondervan, was just a delight. But I'll tell you this, those of you who know me, a guy, I'm pretty comfortable in front of people speaking, um, being in, on large platforms, but I tell you, I was as nervous as I've been the hour before that N.T. Wright interview. I was sh- I could hardly eat. I was shaking. I was, sh- I, was, I was shaking like right at this desk. I'm like, oh, I'm moving, moving my finger forward to click on the link and do all that. And then I saw his name come up, Tom Wright, and I'm like, okay, now I need to let him into the meeting. And I was shaking. I don't, I don't even know. Like, I, that doesn't happen to me. Well, then... As soon as he came on, I was as cool as a cucumber. It was just like, and he was so easy to talk to, and he has plenty to say, and the world needs to hear what he has to say. So it was it was truly an honor for me to have N.T. Wright on the podcast. And that podcast, it didn't do extremely well right away, but there's been kind of like a slow growth to that podcast. And particularly, I, I put out on YouTube just a clip from his comments about Israel and Palestine. And I thought that was a really helpful piece. And so that's actually gone up pretty high on the rankings. It's just a four-minute clip. And then I'm going to add also another piece here. This one didn't go as high. I made this a a little clip as well. But I was intrigued by the fact that N.T. Wright played the trombone as a teenager. And I think it's a really helpful piece that you might not get somewhere else where you see how he thinks that music helped him be a better theologian. And as somebody who's a music major in college, a composer and a trumpet player, um, cornet for those in the Salvation Army, I, uh, I really was uh, glad to hear this perspective. So here it is. Here's a clip from my conversation with N.T. Wright. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in the Messiah, Jesus. Any attempt to say, ah, oh, but there are three or four other promises which aren't yet fulfilled in Jesus, and so God is reserving them for some future thing. This is basically a 19th century mistake of exegesis. It came in through the Plymouth Brethren movement, through the dispensationalism, and obviously the different kinds of dispensationalism, but an attempt to find an eschatology which would get round the rather embarrassing problem that when Jesus came, most of his fellow countrymen didn't believe. Now, the Gospels address that problem, but the way the dispensationalists did it was to say, well, okay, that meant that some of the key promises about the land and so on were put on hold, and they're waiting for a future date. And guess what? That future date was 1947, when the United Mm -hmm. Nations voted to say that um, the Jewish people could go and and establish a a homeland once again. Now, let me make it very clear that I have every total sympathy for the need of the Jewish people, particularly after centuries of pogroms and persecutions Mm -hmm. and um, being kicked out of whole countries and so on, and then particularly reaching its climax in the Nazi Holocaust, of course. Uh, I have every sympathy with saying they have to have a place where they are secure. They have to have a place where they can belong, where they can be themselves. But this has then been pushed 
in a quite yes. different direction, particularly by what has called itself Christian Zionism, which I see as a, a basically a contradiction in terms, because for a Christian, Jesus is Lord of the whole world. The whole world is now God's holy land. And the way the New Testament works is not to say, oh, well, there's this little bit which is still special, and, and that, that's kind of reserved for the Jews at some future date. But no, the, the church is not simply Jews over there waiting for something else and then Gentile Christians over there. That That's a very common mistake which many people make at the moment, thinking to be um, making sure that they're, as it were, making room for the Jewish people, faced with the rising tide of anti-Semitism. We've got it in the UK at the moment. As you say, we're recording on November the 10th. Uh, this coming weekend in London, there's going to be um, a huge uh, march of pro-Palestinian sympathizers, and there's a great political debate whether that should even be allowed, because it may well be, they may well, some of them, be bent on making trouble. And the Jewish community in my country are really frightened at the moment, and I have every sympathy for them. If If I was in the job I was doing once before, I would want to uh, link arms with the local rabbi and walk down the street and say not in our name thank you very much mm. so um, make it very clear yes you are it's 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 not about um casual support for one side or the other at the same time the indiscriminate bombing of civilians etc sure. um mm -hmm. seems to me one of the definitions of a war crime um and so we there's all sorts of stuff going on and the this is why back to romans 8 the plea for lament is so important yes. and and the 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 call to the church to be the people of lament at the place where the world is in pain so that the holy spirit may be lamenting right there and so that the father and the spirit will be sharing that cruciform lament at the heart of the world's pain and that says paul is how god is bringing the new world to birth so our prayer our lament is is not just we're looking on from a distance and saying oh dear it's all rather horrible but we are actually being used in god's purposes to be the vessels and vehicles of the prayer through which he will do the good new things that he wants to do all right we are back with highlights from 2023 Maybe I said the wrong year already. Who knows? 2023. And I'm so thankful for those of you who've come along and participate in this. And it's it's nice to even think back to some of these conversations. And there was a, a moment where I had this uh, realization that people needed to hear both sides of conversations regarding what was happening in the United Methodist Church and those who were seeking to dis disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. But at the same time, I realized there were some similar conversations happening in the Salvation Army, the denomination I grew up in, and also in the Church of Nazarene. So this summer, I hosted a series that was that received a lot of attention, and you know, for at least for my channel, I'm really thankful for it, um, where I asked the same questions to people on both sides of those denominations. So I we agreed upon those questions, and I had them all on and to answer those questions. So I decided to pick one of those, one of them that was very popular, and that was my conversation with Rob Renfro, Reverend Rob Renfro, who is the president of Good News, um, which is a magazine and organization that has helped to lead change and work for change within United Methodism. And so I asked him some questions, and I think these are particularly helpful ones, and I'm so thankful. Like, this is one thing that has happened. I'm thankful that God has used these podcasts to help people see where the progressive sides 
are really going. So to hear a Church of Nazarene representative, not represent, a person from the Church of Nazarene on the progressive side just totally affirm polygamy. That was helpful for people to kind of woke them up. Um, when I had the salvationist on who talked about not believing in hell, not affirming the Bible as anything that represented uh, truth claims, um, that was, a, that was a helpful piece for some people. And then th these conversations with the United Methodist Church were also helpful. Um, so this is just a, two clips that I had with Rob Renfro and thinking about the challenges that are coming to the United Methodist Church and those who are disaffiliating from it. Not giving anything too much away. Like, yeah, he okay. anticipates it to change. But with that, both on the conservative side and the progressive side, there's uh, – there's some challenges with that. So right. like should tradi traditionalists who have remained United Methodists be allowed at that point to pursue uh, options similar to what's existed now? Like once the thing changed, once it changed, because so many people have been said, well, just hold on. We'll see. It's not going to be that bad. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and before I get there, let me just say, look, I, um, you know, I wouldn't feel good about somebody in a different denomination critiquing the GMC and telling the GMC, here are all your problems, here are all your failures and foibles. Yeah, yeah. I'm still UMC. Okay, uh, and, you are. You are still yeah, United Methodist. I, I'm going to stay in the United Methodist Church until the end of 2024 because I want to go to General Conference. I want to advocate for and partner with our our brothers and sisters, especially in international churches okay. uh, outside of the U.S., so that they can have the same pathway out that we've had. There's, we may get into it, but for some technical reason, I'm not saying there's anything that's been done wrong here, but it's been decided that the pathway that has allowed churches in the U.S. to get out does not apply to them. So I'm staying in to help for that. So I'm still United Methodist. I get that I'm going to leave. I get that people who are United Methodist are not really appreciative that I'm still here, but that's the only reason I can feel good about talking about these issues because I'm That's still helpful. part part of the United uh, Methodist uh, Church. Um, so yeah, I, I've heard bishops have said this. I've When I have spoken in churches, I've had district superintendents and pastors follow up right behind me and tell the church, you don't need to make any decision. We don't know where this is going. We don't know if there are going to be any changes. Wait and see. But what's happened is, and understandably so, uh, the bishops are tired of this. This has been a very difficult season, not just for traditional churches trying to get out, but for them and for district right. superintendents. So they are really ready. And even I believe it was Bishop Bickerton who at their last uh, council meeting said, all right, let's be done with the D word. Let's get rid of we're we're done with disaffiliation at the end of this year and let's move forward. But it's like, oh, you can't do that yet. Because you've had people, representatives of the United Methodist Church, telling churches, telling people, don't leave. You don't have to decide now. Let's wait and see if there are any right. changes. Then you can decide. Well, if you've told them that, you are honor bound to keep that word. So, yeah, paragraph 2553 that has allowed churches to leave should either be reinstituted or something very closely uh, to it. Um, that just seems to me to be the honorable, right, just, and, and fair thing. I probably had a but, dozen conversations with people who are in churches that are staying, who are saying, like, well, I'll, I'll wait till I see it. Like, they'll wait for that that moment. Well, that's that's just a terrible mistake. I mean, God bless them. They're probably people who believe the same things I do. But, so, uh, yeah. no, man, I if you cannot read the writing on the wall, you know, I, I know it's hard to make these decisions, but... 
what we've told people is you're very unlikely to get as good a deal or better a deal than you're getting right now because general conference 2024 is going to be more liberal than the last general conference we had your annual conference that has to vote on letting you out most yeah. many of the traditionalists will have left so they're going to be more liberal so the idea that if you just wait and see and that uh and then when things change then you're going to say hey now we want out um we're going to work because it's fair and just but uh, it's going to be a challenge. And uh, man, if you can still get out by the end of this year, get out. It, it's um, my mother used to say, none are so blind as they who will not see. And man, you've got to be really blind not to see that right. the United Methodist Church is changing and it's going to keep changing and it's going to get further and further away from the church that people have known. Shifting gears a little bit, do you support a plan to give international churches the same opportunities to disaffiliate that churches in the U.S. have possessed? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I, I really want to believe that even though our bishops and other denominational leaders are ready to be done with this, mm. Centrists might say, and maybe even progressives, well, Rob, you know, that's a that's pushing it a little far. Don't you? I mean, who who wants to be married by a pastor who doesn't think they can be married? Like they, they can't force anybody to do that, can they? Well, nobody is gonna uh force you to marry folks. They're gonna force you out of the United Methodist Church. Okay, that's gonna be the issue, huh? Yeah, it's like, dude, no. This is who we are. This is what we do. If you're not one of us, you need to go find some place where you can be uh, more at home. Just like if you're not going to marry a black person and a white person, we'd say, okay, time for you to leave the denomination. We're not going to make you force that couple, uh, force you to marry that couple. We're just going to say you can't stay. You find this interesting. I, I'm sorry to keep referring back. You, you're the sixth interview I've done in this format. But if you go back to the Nazarene conversation, you'll see where um, while that the the progressive voice there thought things he thought in general should be restricted to a monogamous couple, he did say he thought that their their book of discipline, their manual, should have an openness for polygamy in other countries. Like he thought that that would be an. So I just want to say, like, and and, and I have been accused of the logical fallacy of the slippery slope for saying this, but my my point is this: we're already there. Like I'm not I'm not saying something is going to happen. Right. I'm saying something is happening like this. This is a reality. Look, it, the the hardest thing to do, maybe, is to get people to see something they don't want to see. And and all these churches that have stayed because we're just going to wait and see if the United Methodist Church is going to change. I, I don't know what's in their hearts, but I can tell you some of them are doing that because they don't want to do hard things right now. Yeah. And if they acknowledge that the United Methodist Church has become something that they cannot be comfortable with. They've got to do difficult things right now. Nobody likes doing difficult things. Nobody likes right. doing it right now if you can put it off later. Yeah. And so people want to say it's not going to get that bad, but we already have pastors who've talked about this new United Methodist Church. It's going to embrace everyone. It's going to embrace uh, straight, gay, queer, bi, polyamorous, um, Miss Pentecost, real name Isaac Simmons, uh, he posted on Facebook that his project at seminary now 
is to uh, create uh, resources, a curriculum, I believe, for polyamorous couples in churches that don't accept uh, polyamorism. And so this isn't just something I've come up with to scare people. This is presently happening. You'll you'll say, well, that's crazy. It'll never happen. Well, 40 years ago, nobody thought we'd be marrying gay people. I'm not talking about the rightness or the wrongness of it. I'm just saying it was beyond comprehension. Right, right. And so let me just ask you, when have you ever seen progressives say, okay, there and no farther? Yeah. Okay, we're going to go right here. But the next thing, oh, that's a little too crazy for us. I mean, they... I, I probably am yeah. being judgmental, but I've never seen them say, okay, we can't go that. There's always a group pushing, pushing. Yeah. And... How about we be more conservative? Let's try that. <laughs> no. And I want to yeah. say, uh, Miss Pentecost is, uh, you said she's a seminary student. I just want to confirm that seminary project was not for Wesley Biblical Seminary, just to be clear, just to be clear. <laughs> oh, that's All a right. relief. Well, we're back here with the last highlight from 2023 and just wanted to emphasize some of these things that had happened some of the high points in the podcast this has been a great year for the podcast thanks for everybody who's come along and participated in it one of the things that happened this past summer was there was an interesting debate that happened amongst evangelical wesleyan scholars about the nature of biblical authority and at wesley biblical seminary for our almost 50-year history, we've taken a strong stand to use the word inerrancy to describe the scripture and its authority in our lives. And so as a result of conversations that were happening all around Wesleyanism and in several places, there were some challenges to people not wanting to use that word. We felt that it would be helpful for us to provide some clarity into our position. So I brought on some representatives from WBS, and this this section highlights some of the, the comments from Dr. Steve Blakemore and Dr. Murray Vassar, and also a joke you can just barely hear that I dropped, and that's probably why I wanted to include this. When he said he's not an old earth or a young earth, he's a, he's like he was trying to say he doesn't take a position there. I inserted that I, I wanted him to be a middle earth person. So I said he's a middle earth person. That was my little joke. There you go. You have to put up with the corny dad jokes from Andy Miller. But nevertheless, thankful for the chance that we had to record this conversation. And this was one of the, uh, this wasn't one of the top YouTube videos, but it was one of the top podcasts downloaded on an audio format. So that's, a, that's I try to measure all those things to figure out what I would highlight here. Thanks for checking this out. Oh, yeah, there are a lot of caveats that we uh, supply when we talk about errors in the Bible, but that's because the Bible is a complex book. Yeah, this is helpful. That was that touches upon what I was in my long-winded meanderings, what I was trying to get at. When you affirm the doctrine of inerrancy and the doctrine of the God-breathed inspiration of the Scripture, when I said God not only inspired the writers to write down ideas, but He inspired them in the sense that He inspired their creativity to write in a particular way or in a particular form. And I've read Lacona's work on this very thing, this whole uh, biographical telescoping technique that ancient biographers in the first and second, uh, early, even the early first century BC in the first century AD, second century AD, utilized to tell tell accurate accounts. Um, And um, so all of that to say, it does. So when people say, oh, well, you have to begin to qualify what you don't mean. Well, in what possible world 
do you not have to qualify what you don't mean when you make any claim? So, for instance, a, um, a theistic evolutionist, and, you know, truth in advertising here, I'm more of an intelligent design person. Um, I, am not, I am not a young earth person. I am not an old earth person. I'm agnostic. Because I don't think science You're a is, yeah, I'm a middle. I don't think science is nearly is nearly as able to make the sort of claims that it in, it insists insists upon. Uh, I don't think it. I don't think our measurement techniques. I don't think any of them are that accurate. But but by the same token, I don't think the the Book of Genesis is was written creatively by Moses or redacted by Moses or whatever, put together um, as, a, as an explanation for the exact process that God used. Even St. Augustine said, God created it all at once. Boom. And the whole thing just fell into place, and then it started unfolding. But my point is this. There's nothing, if you're a theistic evolutionist as a Christian, if there's, and you ask somebody, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't mean, because I've had multiple conversations. I don't mean this. I don't mean this. I don't mean this. Oh, do you think this? Oh, no, that's not what I mean by that. And so in anything you're going to do, you're going to have to begin to qualify. And so it is just, it's a red herring to say you have to, you have to begin to say what I don't mean from the jump. And so the reason that I chose back in the... Back in the 90s, uh, after I graduated from Asbury Theological Seminary, back in the 90s, I chose, in the, when I was a United Methodist pastor, after reading a bunch of books about biblical authority, I decided I'm going to embrace the term inerrancy. Because when I use that term, I'm making the strongest possible statement I can make about the authority of the revelation that is in the scripture. Now, if somebody said, well, what do you mean by that? I can begin to have a conversation. But terminology is important. And so the people who don't want to be inerrantists, they, they, they develop a different term. But it's a term that when you really push them on it, um, it's, it's, it's a shade different. But they talk about the Bible is infallible. It's infallible in all that it teaches, right? right? Well, okay, so what does it teach? And so this goes back to um, what these two guys were talking about. You know, what does the Bible teach? Now, that's a, that's a hermeneutical question right there, right? So what kind of literature is this? How does it fit into the context of the ancient world in which it was written? Because the documents that we're dealing with are ancient documents. They weren't written to be newspaper articles, right? Or, or to be modern day uh, travel logs. And so um, we, have to, we just have to say, what does the Bible teach? Nor sheer entertainment. Yeah. Like transformational. Like right. you're gonna watch this and it's gonna be, it's gonna impact you. Right. It's gonna transform you. True or not, doesn't matter. It's a powerful story. Right, it's just until so we get back into post-liberalism. Let me jump in about that because I thought, I'm sorry, I, th I had all these thoughts rattling around in my old so brain. But um, the idea of the Bible can be transformational, 
and we should read it for soteriological purposes. Why? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Why, why it and not the Upanishads? That's right. Yeah. Why it and not the Quran? Why? And so the distinction between information and transformation, as you put it, Andy, is a, it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. We, choose, we, we choose to believe that the Bible can be read for salvific purposes because of the information that's there. And so once again, we get back to hermeneutics. In, in the, and by the way, the Chicago Statement, most people don't know this. I've read, I've read all of it. But it also has the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics, as well as the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. And it goes in great, to great length to talk about all the various genres and how you have to approach them differently, and et cetera, et cetera. And so the idea that it's transformational and not informational, uh, once again, is just... It's just a false dichotomy. Okay. Can I ask Murray uh, something? Yeah. Sorry. Okay, I was going for Murray too, so that's good. Well, well this I, Chicago, we're talking about Chicago Statement, and but the Chicago Statement is just a contemporary, recent. Oh, that's right. Exactly. It doesn't reach, do. You know, it's, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a more. Why are we putting so much? We've stock? created this in the 20th century. Right. Know, like so a, before anyone, the claim. Any, people who weren't alive when the Chicago Statement was written, I just want to can't affirm. be an artist. Yes. Right. Yes. Well, yeah, the claim so is that inerrancy was invented by modern fundamentalists. Right. And yeah. so, like, how could you say that Jesus was an inerrant? Or John Wesley. Or, Wesley or, yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to that? <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, I think that um, the, uh, there are hints of it earlier, but the very clearest, uh, most robust articulation of inerrancy uh, goes all the way back to the uh, late 4th, early 5th century with Augustine. Uh, he had a, this interesting dispute with Jerome over the interpretation of the passage in Galatians where uh, Paul says that he confronted Peter, and uh, that, that passage created, to his face, yeah, and that passage created a problem for the early church because the view of these two, uh, you know, great pillars of the church fighting with each other was embarrassing, right? So, so Jerome said, well, maybe, maybe Peter and Paul actually agree with each other, but uh, for the sake of the weak Jewish Christians, um, Peter just pulled back for a little bit from the Gentiles just to help their faith. Um, and uh, Peter uh, and Paul knew this, and so he just sort of pretended to rebuke Peter in front of everybody for their benefit. Um, and um, you know, note here that that um, the error that Jerome is suggesting in the text is not an error in his theology, right? Um, it's just he's saying that his histor uh, Jerome is suggesting that Paul's historical narration isn't exactly straightforward. And Augustine said, no, 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 we cannot say that because everything that the Bible teaches is true. And Augustine has a couple of important qualifications there. He's, he says, you know, now if I see something in the text that seems to me not to be true, then I conclude either the, the translation I have is an error or the manuscript that the translator used was faulty or that I failed to understand. So we see those important qualifications. This, uh, the claim of inerrancy uh, understands that this is about the original text, which we don't uh, in all cases necessarily know for certain. Oh, and then, you know, there's a discipline of text criticism. Um, and then also that it involves interpretation. So maybe our interpretation of the text is wrong. Um, but uh, so, yeah, that's very clearly stated by Augustine. And then Wesley, um, he, uh, uh, there was a bishop who made the case. It's very similar, I think, to what a lot of people today make, where um, the, this bishop said, well, Scripture is an infallible guide for us in the Christian faith, right? And so because that's its purpose, it 
inspiration, divine inspiration, only ensures that there's no considerable error, in other words, no significant error, but that there might be trivial errors. It's, it's okay if they're trivial errors. And again, Wesley, when he heard that, he said, no, no, no. He said, he said if, if there's any error at all, then that shakes the authority of the whole. Um, so I think that the uh, Chicago Statement is just articulating what has been the traditional view. And I would, if I could, jump back real quick to something that you said, Steve, about the whole evolution thing. I think it, people should know that uh, J.I. Packer, who is one of the theologians who helped to frame, helped to write the Chicago Statement, um, while he was skeptical about some of the uh, claims of evolution, he said um, that he didn't think there was anything in Genesis 1 and 2 that um, uh, was incompatible with the theory of evolution. And notice that's not just the, the age of the earth. The theory of evolution is, uh, includes a theory of common descent, right? Um, so uh, now whether or not you agree with that, that's, that's some people debate, but you should know that you know, one of the people who wrote the Chicago Statement was per, uh, said that uh, you know, there was nothing uh, wrong with embracing fully the, the theory of evolution. So just a quick response. I, would, I agree everything you said. I'd go back even further sure. than Augustine. I'd say the Bible itself yeah. says plainly that it's perfect. Psalm 19, for example. Now I know that interpretation perfectly and everything that teaches regard to salvation, let's say that's... But what I'm getting at is that just because a sophisticated articulation of a particular doctrine came about later in history didn't mean that the notion of what that articulated didn't exist prior to its articulation. Again, thanks everybody for checking out this podcast, uh, these highlights from 2023. It was fun to be able to think through this past year and to bring these five episodes to you. Again, if you would, would subscribe on YouTube, if you would um, take an opportunity to share this with a friend, make a comment, and on Apple Podcasts, we really could use some people to make some reviews there. I would love it if you make, gave it five stars. That helps, I guess, they tell me with all the algorithms and that kind of thing. I don't know exactly when this comes out, but just remember, there's a chance for you to get 50% off of any of my courses. Um, a course on heaven, a course on June, for your small groups, your Sunday school class, until um, January 2nd, if you use the code HALF, H-A-L-F. All right, God bless you all. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Story Podcast.